the first half of 2020 has been a torrential stress storm that Americans are working harder than ever to weather. The extra shot of COVID-19 mixed into our already hectic work lives and the social unrest has turned us into a cocktail of stress and anxiety. However, there are scientific steps you can take to alleviate all kinds of mental and physical pressure if you're overstressed, overworked, and over it already. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about how to deal with life's daily diet of stress. With an extra serving of a global pandemic on our plates, new research says you can better cope with the barrage of stressors life hurls at you by incorporating two strategies into daily life, proactive coping and mindfulness. The key is to balance plans for the future with living in the moment. Our second story looks at a new downside of working long hours. With research adding hypothyroidism to a growing list of health risks, scientists have reached one conclusion that might be particularly helpful in warding off extra work stress. Free time should be free time. As we adapt to new job schedules, the question now becomes, how does working from home put us at risk for work health-related complications? This is The Abstract. Look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, de-stressing your life, two strategies at a time. COVID-19 is creating a lot of mental health stress. I want to take a moment to discuss the psychological impact of a virus. Talking to a psychiatrist about how you should be caring for your own mental health. During the stressful COVID-19 pandemic. Our new life in the wake of COVID-19 leaves many of us in fear of the unknown or in a state of stress brought on by close living quarters and supermarket hoarders. In fact, the pursuit of toilet paper has pushed some of us over the edge. That was a fight over toilet paper. The coping strategies of days past, shopping outbursts aside, may be ill-suited to handle our brand new environment. Many are struggling with the anxiety of the unknown as things remain uncertain, and thus stress becomes a daily new fixture in our lives. In a recent study from North Carolina State University, researchers learned that perhaps the best way to tackle your daily stress triggers involves the use of two key strategies, proactive coping and mindfulness. Both these tricks work together to create an enhanced coping mechanism that, if balanced correctly, can successfully ward off excess stress and anxiety. Here to break it all down for us is Mind and Body Editor Sarah Sloat. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. I'm I'm trying to be in the moment. I think a lot of people recognize it. It's become a bit of a trend as of late. In general, people are more hip to the concept of being aware. It's an age-old philosophy that's only recently been embraced by, I guess, maybe the Western world. But what kind of science or research backs this concept up as of late? Is there much? Yeah. The world of mindfulness is a complicated one. Concepts that underlie mindfulness aren't anything new. It's essentially a Buddhist-inspired collection of practices. But in the past two decades, what's changed is that scientists are paying more and more attention to these practices, this idea of focusing on the present. And in turn, there's been a plethora of studies that have been conducted. But there's 
more complications there. You know, some reviews have found that not all of these studies have been conducted in the best way. And so, you know, I think that mindfulness has become a bit of a catch-all that has some real science that could really boost it. Um, but it is important to take some claims with a grain of salt. That said, the studies that have that are robust and have examined it, they define the practice as present moment awareness. And present moment awareness, in turn, has been linked to a number of positive effects, including stress and chronic pain reduction, as well as providing a boost to overall well-being. So the second strategy is um, proactive coping. Might be a little less familiar to folks. How does this concept work? So while mindfulness brings non-judgmental awareness to the present, you know, it involves accepting the here and now, proactive coping involves working to reduce the likelihood of experiencing future stress. In turn, um, studies show that people who do more proactive coping, like visualizing their dreams and trying to achieve them, tend to encounter fewer stressful experiences. So it's making a plan for the future in a smart and proactive way. Probably difficult to do these days, considering we're all just kind of a little, you know, uncertain about the future. Yes, like we are living in very different times right now. But proactive coping in turn could be something like making a rainy day fund or making sure that you stocked up on Tylenol. You know, there are small steps you could take that make you feel like you're, you're in control. But about this study, how did researchers come to find that these were the two key ways, these two strategies are the, are, are the ones that work. Yes. What the lead researcher and her team did was look at the data of 223 study participants. They were asked to fill in surveys detailing how often they practice mindfulness or proactive coping over the course of eight consecutive days. And when they looked at all of these surveys, they saw that on average, proactive coping did help limit the effects of daily stressors. But, and this is like the big but, but that positive effect didn't show up on days when the participants reported low levels of mindfulness, leading to the idea that it's a combination of mindfulness and proactive coping that leads to resilience. And in looking at your piece, this study highlights the real tension that humans experience in striking that balance, balancing plans for the future while at the same time living in the moment. Is that the big takeaway here, that if we can strike this balance, we're on our way to some stress relief. Exactly. What the lead author told me is that you could try to balance future-oriented and present-oriented thinking by, you know, proactively looking for those future stressors, thinking about how they're going to affect your life, but also when those daily stressors do inevitably show up, being able to mindfully attend to the present is probably the best thing to do. So you hinted at a couple of ways we can use this in our new everyday life with regards to planning, but how can we further really embrace the concept of using these two strategies day to day? Any tips? Yeah. Something that the lead author really emphasized to me is that there should not be one one size fits all coping solution. You know, everyone should be encouraged to try various coping techniques. You find what works for you and then you could experiment. But that said, there are ways that you could take the findings of this study and apply them to your life. You know, it really comes down to matching coping strategies with the demands of your 
situation. So I think here it's a mix of, okay, you know, many things in life feel uncontrollable, but that doesn't mean I actually don't have control. You know, you could stock up on your two weeks of groceries, you know, you can make sure that the kids have their study plans ready for the day. So you can in turn, like find your own time to do your work. But all that said, you have to also practice mindfulness, which is trying not to succumb to anxieties and fears about the future, about thinking about your present, thinking about taking things one step at a time. And, and like we've been talking about striking a balance between being prepared, but also not being overwhelmed. You can read more of Sarah's article at inverse.com. Thanks so much, Sarah. Of course. Thank you. New research is only adding to the laundry list of health complications brought on by too much stress. One of the biggest culprits being overworked. Up now, the list has been refreshed. Here's the latest reason that working long hours is bad for your health. The number one killer of old people is retirement. People got a job to do. They tend to live a little bit longer so they can do it. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe there is something that just compels us to work and keep working, even when it's time to stop working. Technology isn't helping. For the past few decades, it's made it practically impossible for us to not keep working. And it's working. We keep working. Dr. Hee-Jung Chung, professor of sociology and social policy at the University of Kent, she's also an advocate for work-life balance, has more on this. Technology has developed to a great extent in the past few decades, where increasingly your work doesn't have to be confined into a certain space. Your work isn't in a certain database that you could only access in the office. And you could connect to people through various means, including you know, various mobile uh, data services. And what we do see is that you don't confine your workspace into the office that you work in. You could work whenever you want and wherever you want. And now, amid the backdrop of a global pandemic, working from home becomes a quarantined new setting that many of us are still adjusting to. But it still doesn't necessarily stop us from working longer hours. We find that empirically, the more autonomy or more control you give workers, they tend to increase their working hours. People who telework, work from home, increase the number of hours they work. Now, this could be explained by various things. One was the gift exchange. Oh, because my employer was so kind to give me this freedom, I'll return it by working harder and longer. Especially if you don't have to do a very long commute, then you have that extra time to do extra work, right? On the other hand, it could be because employers now have a way to perhaps increase workloads without the confines of labor laws. But working longer hours has its downsides. What might look like passion or dedication can actually manifest itself in long-term harm to the heart or brain when taken to extremes. A study published April 2020 in the Journal of Endocrine Society backs this up and adds yet another cost of working long hours to a growing list. It suggests workers who spent more than 53 hours on the job had twice the rates of hypothyroidism. This is compared to those who worked between 36 and 42 hours. The team suggests their work is the first to show that thyroid complications have been tied to working long hours. 
We didn't even get into how working too much in a single week is very likely to result in weight gain, fatigue, sensitivity to cold, hair loss, among other various physical symptoms. Here with more on this and to talk about the downside to working long hours and why it might encourage you to log off every now and then is Inverse staff writer Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma, how's it going? Hi, Tanya. How are you? I'm good. Are you working too hard? Because I am. Uh, maybe, maybe an extra hour or two here. Although I should probably know better at this point. Well, that's yeah, exactly. We're gonna get into that. You know, it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do at home, and you know, it wears on us. I think a lot of people can relate. What were you able to learn specifically about this wear and tear on a health level? What do we know about how working all these hours has impacted our general health? Yeah, there's actually a lot of research on work-related burnout, um, and there has been for a couple of years. Um, We know that working long or extended hours uh, has been linked to stroke in the past, um, and there was a new uh, study that just came out that links it specifically to hypothyroidism. So that's a condition where the thyroid gland, which is at the base of your neck, doesn't secrete the the adequate amount of thyroid hormones. So that can mean things like weight gain or fatigue or sensitivity to cold, hair loss, and symptoms like that. Um, So uh, there was a study just done in Korea that found that people who work between 53 and 83 hours a week um, in that sample, 3.5% of people ended up with hypothyroidism. Um, And people who work between 36 and 42 hours a week, only 1.4% ended up with the condition. Um, There are obviously some caveats here. Those are all pretty small numbers, though in comparison, um, you do see that there's a significant difference between those who are working more than 53 hours a week and those who are working around 40 hours a week. Um, But still, this is a relatively small percentage. And I should add that this is in a group of 2,160 workers. So if we shift gears a bit, like many of us have recently, a lot of people are working from home lately. Um, does that make things different? Is this because, you know, this is new territory for a lot of us. On the one hand, you're out of that office setting, which can, I guess, depending on where you work, be a relief. But at home, you know, I find the day is longer. You know, maybe we maybe it's because we hit the pause button a bit more making this movie that we're living a little longer as a result. But do we know much yet about how this setting would affect the whole situation? Well, there's not a whole lot of research on working during a pandemic, but When I was reporting this story, it felt crazy not to ask these researchers how our new work lives would play into their results. Um, So if you take a look at some of the background data just on people who are working from home, um, there is a VPN company, NordVPN, and they've been collecting data since March 11th on, um, you know, the number of hours employees are working. And they uh, sort of put a rough estimate saying that um, in the U.S., people are working about three more hours every day. Um, So one of the things that this researcher mentioned was that as long as you're working these extra hours, it follows that you might see these effects, though their study couldn't really uh, pin that down for sure. Um, But we have seen um, from other other studies on things like working what they call supplemental hours, um, which means that you maybe work an extra hour or two on the night or on the weekends, and these can have horrible effects on health. So there was a 2014 study uh, in Europe, and it was a total of 57,000 people pulled from two different populations. And they reported how often they felt things like uh, musculoskeletal pain, cardiovascular or gastrointestinal issues. And the people who found themselves doing more supplemental work were more likely to report a health problem than those who didn't. Um, So that is sort of an evidence-based way of looking at what happens when you work a little bit too much. 
Mm-hmm. And and more on that front, um, you went into this in your uh, writing, but can you talk a little bit more about this South Korean culture and what happened there? Because that's another good example of this reality, of how, how when you change the reality of working too long, um, too many hours, that does impact things. Yeah. So South Korea had sort of the uh, journalists that I've read in that country, they describe it as an inhumanely long work week. So in 2018, the government actually put a cap on the number of hours that could be worked in a seven-day period. So it was 68 hours a week, um, and that was taken down to 52, which feels still like a lot of hours, but is a far more manageable uh, amount of hours to be thinking about. So this study doesn't really speak to that change specifically, but it does sort of tell you a little bit about the environment in which this study was being conducted. It was done in South Korea by South Korean researchers, and they're really interested in the health effects of overwork, so much so that they've actually you know, taken those health effects in mind when they make policy. So in terms of what we can do, were you able to learn anything? Should we, If we were to use this as an opportunity to just get the tiniest bit healthier, are there ways to kind of balance the scale? Again, hard to do when things are so easy to fall into, especially at home, but I'm just wondering if um, anything kind of came of that. So this study doesn't really speak to what we can do to sort of unplug, but there are lots of ways that people can sort of step away from work, Um, keeping regular work schedules. That's something that we've been trying to do, at least at Inverse, and I'm sure that you've heard of it too, just stepping away from the computer at a reasonable hour, going outside, social distancing, of course, you know, the whole time, but trying to make sure that just because you're home, you're not always available. And you could probably actually, if you want to learn a little bit more about that, you should definitely read Strategy, which is being written by Ali Petillo, our, a mind and body writer at Inverse. And she's been writing a lot about sort of ways that you can keep your life manageable and your work life manageable during the pandemic. Definitely. So look out for that. Uh, you can read more of Emma's piece at Inverse.com. Emma, thanks as always. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. Head to Inverse.com to read more about how science can help you take on stress and being overworked. You can click on the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. You can find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for the Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.